This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Legend of the Bones. Following in the footsteps of giants, Legend of the Bones is a chimera. A mix of old school tabletop RPG and dark fantasy storytelling. As its name might suggest, in Legend of the Bones, the dice rule. There'll be no re-rolls, no fudging the dice, no metacurrency. The roll of the bones will determine the character's destiny, and no one will be spared their fate. None shall escape the destiny of bone. Last time on Legend of the Bones. Whilst staying at Castle Trevenid, the stronghold of Lord Colwyn, Lena was attacked by an assassin. The cleric was nearly killed, but Valen, who heard a disturbance, came to Lena's aid, and using the spell Push, forced the assassin to fall from the window to his death. Afterwards, Lord Colwyn's soldiers discovered that the assassin had killed Redward, the agent of the Brethren who had been captured by the Companions. The next day, in conference with Lord Colwyn, Brannock, and Colwyn's commander of his housecarls, Canute, the companions surmised that the assassin had been sent by the Brethren of the Purifying Light, so to keep Redwald from revealing any more secrets, and also to neutralise Lena, whom they might see as a threat. Valen argued that the fanatical cult must be preparing a plan, which, if it involved the collective power of the Five Jewels from Vortigan's Crown, would have dire consequences. The companions agreed that they must discover more about the Five Jewels, and those to whom they were entrusted a thousand years ago, and in that vein, Lord Colwyn bid them to visit the monastery at Innis Gwyn, for the monks of that holy island had been keeping a history of the peninsula for centuries. Chapter 22 Part 1 Day 30. Morning. Party status. Beric, 23 out of 23 hit points. Elena, 16 out of 16 hit points. Kia, 10 out of 10 hit points. Valen, 11 out of 11 hit points. Spells available. Valen has memorized Push, Shield, and Soothe. Lena can pray for two first-level miracles. For three days, a ferocious storm ravaged the north coast of Powan Moor, causing sailors and fishermen alike to take refuge in the ports and harbours, as the sea swelled in great waves to ravage the exposed headlands. Such a tempest was unusual this late into spring, leading folk to believe that Torven, the god of the sky and storms, was fighting with his brother Havlar the god of the wind and the sea. And so in communities all along the coast, people huddled in their homes and made offerings to appease the siblings' divine wrath. During this time, Lord Conwyn had offered a vessel and crew, led by Canute, to take the companions to Innis Gwyn, which lay some 75 miles to the east, and preparations were made for their departure once the storm had abated. Conwyn had confided that whilst his domain faced other troubles, 
it was the brethren of the purifying light that posed the greatest threat. And so it was in his interests, as well as the companions, that the cult's ambitions were frustrated. As the storm raged, Lena spent two days and two nights in vigil, and whilst others beseeched Torven and Havlar to cease their conflict, the cleric's prayers were offered to Naya. With this act of devotion, Lena pleaded for the goddess to watch over Lady Neve, to strengthen the noblewoman's womb and protect her from evil. Then, with the coming of dawn on the fourth day, the storm had dissipated, and the world awoke to bright, clear skies. And so it was that having gathered their belongings, the companions came once again to the Great Hall, where Lord Conwyn and Lady Neve received them, along with Brannock and Canute. Well then, Conwyn began, I said that you would be rewarded, and I am always true to my word. He got up, and stepping off the dais, approached Beric, as a boy carrying a silver tray came to his side. Canute here will tell you that the most important thing for a warrior is reputation, and that reputation is measured by the rings they wear," Conwyn said. He took an exquisite silver arm ring from the tray and held it towards the big man. Thank you, my lord, Beric responded, accepting the ring and sliding it next to the gold ring from Vortigern's tomb. Conwyn moved to Kier, who, under the lord's steady gaze, shifted uncomfortably. A half-smile played across the nobleman's lips. A man's past may haunt him, he said, presenting a silver dagger, the hilt fashioned as a serpent's head. But it is his future that can define him. Kier took the dagger, admiring its craftsmanship. The rogue looked back at Conwyn, and gave a small nod. Now, Conwyn said, turning to Valen. Thirty years ago, a man, a mage, came to Trevenant. He asked my father for the old lighthouse at Pencarath. Amos, Valen exclaimed. Yes, my father agreed, but demanded something in return. Conwyn took a silver ring from the platter and held it for Valen to see. Amos gave my father this ring. He said when worn, my father would know the thoughts of another, but that it would only work three times. He turned the ring over in his hand. My father accepted the bargain and used the ring immediately to know the mind of the stranger. Later, my father would tell me that Amos must be left in peace, for he bore a great burden. I am beginning to understand that burden, my lord. Indeed, Lord Conwyn agreed. The ring was used one more time by my father before it passed to me. I myself have never had cause to use it, and now I pass it on to you, for I think your need is greater. He handed the ring to Valen. Thank you, my lord. Conwyn simply nodded before looking towards his wife. Lady Neve stepped forward to Lena, carrying a small bundle. You have brought me comfort these past days, and I am grateful. Lena bowed her head. I need no thanks, nor gift, my lady. That I know. But nonetheless, it pleases me to do so, Lady Neve said, smiling. She passed the bundle to Lena. It is the gown and links that you wore, and here. Neve produced a small silver hand mirror 
which he placed atop the bundle. This is to remind you that your beauty within is matched by your beauty without. Lena blushed. Thank you, Neve. It's time, Brannock interjected. Kadoop will take you to Edisquin, the Reeve explained, and from there to the mainland. But once you pass the needles, you will be beyond my lost domain. So from here on, you cannot act in Lord Conwyn's, nor my name. Understood, Beric acknowledged. Brannock offered a hand, which the big man accepted. Gods be with you. Having said their farewells, the companions followed Knut out of the keep and across the grounds to a small door in the north wall of the palisade. Beyond, they made their way down a long, winding stairway, cut into the cliffside. The wind blew wildly, whipping up their cloaks, as the resident kittiwakes circled in their hundreds around the craggy cliff face, eagerly bringing fish for their hungry nestlings. Eventually, the stair ended at a tunnel, going into the cliffside. It sloped gently downwards, until they came to a seaward cave which housed a small quay that was used as a landing area for vessels coming to and from the stronghold. Dozens of men were busying themselves around a single moored longship, around 60 feet in length. It was an open vessel with no enclosed space, save for a small area beneath where the helmsman would stand. The ship had a single sail, reefed upon a short mast, and benches to accommodate 40 oarsmen, whilst the prow and stern rose up, the stern terminating in a spiral, while the prow was tipped with an ornately carved dragon's head. This is the Uver Draka, the storm dragon, Knut explained. She's the fastest ship in these parts. There was clear pride in his voice. Come. The warrior led the party aboard, and directed them to take seats near the prow, while the crew finished stowing weapons, armor, and supplies, before hanging shields over the sides and taking their positions on the benches. As the companions made their way past the oarsmen, they noticed another passenger sitting beneath the dragon's head. It was the bard, Talion. Dramatis Personae, Knut. Knut is a human third level fighter. He is 26 years old, with blue eyes and a wild mane of blonde hair, which is worn long, as is his beard, which is plaited into forks. He is an imposing man, standing at 6 foot 2 and weighing 185 pounds. He has a quick wit and a keen sense of humour, and that, along with his prowess in battle, commands loyalty from all who fight alongside him. Knut is from the distant land of Scanvia, a realm far to the north, a place of hard mountains, tall coniferous forests, and deep fjords, a land covered in ice for much of the year, and which breeds folk who are tough and resilient. The folk of other lands perceive the Skane, the people of Scanvia, as violent barbarians who delight in raiding and acts of piracy for they come each season in their dragon ships to harry coastal settlements for treasure and slaves. And whilst they are undoubtedly skilled warriors, and you'll find no better sailors, they come as often to trade and settle. For in truth, they are fine craftsmen, artists and shipbuilders, 
with a rich culture. Skarnay children are trained to fight from an early age, and it is a rite of passage for adolescents to prove themselves in the hunt against a ferocious beast. And so it was that upon passing the thirteen summers, Knut's father, Harald, took him out upon his ship, the Seyhraffen. Hours passed as they sailed north towards the hunting grounds. The crew were unusually quiet and taciturn, for a boy's trial was a grave matter. Knut stood alongside his father at the helm and looked out upon the black, ice-filled water. This far north, the world was still, and only the rhythmic creaking of the oars as they dipped in and out of the water broke the silence. Ahead, the Arctic shore stood in contrast against the dark sea, a white strip, stark and proud like a blade catching the sun. Knut drew his bearskin cloak about him. It was deathly cold, and he could feel his stomach turning sour. He was not afraid of what he might face, but he did fear bringing shame upon his father. They were close now, and the oarsmen slowed the ship to a crawl. Most of the solid ground in this place was nothing more than a vast plain of floating ice, but occasionally this was interspersed with small islands of rock and gravel, locked into the frozen waste. And it was on one such island that Knut's father beached the same Halafin. Knut looked up at his father. He was a powerful, barrel-chested man, and Knut loved and feared him in equal measure. His father placed a hand upon his shoulder. Over that ridge, Howell pointed to a snow-covered outcrop beyond the gravel beach. There is a bay, where you will find a herd of walrus. His father had never looked so serious. Take my spear, kill a male, and bring me its tusks. His father paused, and for a moment, Canute thought he saw a tear welling in the corner of his eye. But then Howell's gaze hardened. Or do not come back at all. Knut nodded, and then moved to the side of the ship and climbed overboard. Howell passed him the spear, saying nothing more. Without looking back, the boy made for the ridge. Knut had waited his entire life for this moment, and as he reached the summit, he felt the sourness in his stomach melt away as he gazed down upon scores of walruses basking under the distant sun. Females nursed their pups while huge males viciously tore at each other's flesh with their long tusks as they fought for mating rights. He moved around the ridge, dipping out of view of the Seherafen, the snow crunching under his boots. He squatted down behind a rock, the sun on his back. Scanning the beach, he spotted a lone male at the edge of the herd. It was massive, probably weighing at least 3,000 pounds. Its wrinkled brown skin bore the scars of numerous fights, and protruding from its upper lip, like two swords, were its great tusks, almost three feet in length. It raised its head, and opening its maw, bellowed, its breath misting in the cold arctic air. Knut gripped the shaft of the spear. This was it, his chance to prove himself, to become a man, and a warrior in the eyes of his people. He readied himself. Suddenly, a great shadow fell upon him. For an instant, he thought the sun must have disappeared behind a cloud. Just as quickly, he realized that something was behind him. He spun around, only to see an enormous mass of white fur, teeth and claws. 
Knut instinctively raised the spear as the bear raised up on its hind legs. It lashed out with a paw. The force of it snapped the spear shaft in two, ripping it from the boy's hands. The bear lunged forward, snarling, sensing easy prey. Without thinking, Knut dived down and scrambled between the bear's legs. The animal was on all fours now, and with no thought of safety, Knut spun and, drawing his dagger, leapfrog onto the bear's back. He stabbed down, again and again in quick succession. The bear reared up and spun around, roaring as blood soaked its fur. Knut was thrown free, landing on his back. The animal turned, and the boy scrambled, seeing the broken spear lying nearby. The bear leaped, stabbing its head forward. Knut raised the spear, thrusting the tip up through the bear's mouth, piercing its brain. Knut cleared the ridge and trudged back down towards the Seherafen, the bear's skin leaving a slick trail of blood as the boy dragged his trophy behind him. He could see the crew gathered, watching him approach, his father front and centre among them. He stopped before the ship, dropping the skin. He raised the broken spear in salute, his arms and hands stained red. His father looked at him, the pride clearly visible on his face. <laughs> My son, he said. Now you are a man. So, the party have their first magic item in the form of the ring given to Valen. Albeit its power is somewhat limited to a single use, enabling the wearer, in this case Valen, to invoke the second level spell ESP, which allows the caster to know the thoughts of others for 12 turns. Now back to the matter in hand. If you have listened to the show from episode 0, then you will know that everything began with a shipwreck that left Beric, Lena and Kia as the only survivors. I wonder if this next voyage will prove just as deadly. At the start of this episode, I rolled some weather checks off Mike, and that resulted in the storm described in the narrative, which delayed the party for several days. Fortunately, the roll for the start of the voyage has resulted in almost perfect sailing conditions, but the weather can change quickly at sea, so let's hope it stays that way. Whilst technically a longship could make the journey in a single day, this would depend on the direction of the wind. But at most, the journey will take two days barring any misfortune. Let's find out. Day 30. I'm going to make another weather roll. A 19. The skies remain clear and it turns into a glorious day heralding the arrival of summer. Wind direction. I am using a random direction table based on rolling a d8. A 2. That's northeast meaning the ship will travel against the wind. The crew will need to row, and the journey will go into a second day. Stumble upon? A one, nothing. Now for wandering encounters. A roll of one or two on a d6 will indicate something. A four, so the first day passes without event. Day 31. After sleeping on the ship overnight, 
Knut gets them back underway shortly after dawn. Weather. A 20. The day is unseasonably hot and more akin to what would be experienced in midsummer. Wind direction. A 7. That indicates a westerly wind. Good news, as this will allow Canute to lower the sails and make good time. Stumble upon. 17. Nothing. Wandering encounters. A 2. An encounter is indicated. Okay, I have created an encounter table for sea voyages, which you can find at legendofthebones.blogspot.com. Rolling 3d6. A 15. Let's see. Oh, okay. Well, this could be interesting. Chapter 22, Part 2, Day 31, Morning. Party status. The party status is unchanged. The spray of the ocean tickled the companions' faces, and the tangy smell of salt and sea filled their nostrils, as the Uberdracher glided across the water like a graceful beast. Its sleek form sliced through the waves with ease. The deep rumble of the sea was almost hypnotic as the sun beat down upon the vessel, warming the travellers against the fresh, cool breeze. The ship headed eastwards, following the coast which lay to the south, where the waves beat relentlessly against the rocks. Beric, however, gazed out north into the horizon. The endless expanse of blue and green met an equally endless sky above. His mind was cast back to the siren and the terrible storm which had caused the sea to claim so many lives. Many would have been scarred by such an experience, fearful to step aboard another ship, but not him. And whilst he felt small and insignificant in the face of such overwhelming power and beauty, he felt more alive than ever. Beric! A voice called from the helm. Beric turned, and Canute waved at the big man to join him. The warrior picked his way past the benches, it makes you feel alive, yes? Canute asked rhetorically, almost shouting so as to be heard above the sea and wind, which whipped his long blonde hair, making it dance like flames. Beric nodded in reply. I never feel more at home than on a ship. The endless possibilities and the freedom it promises. Canute continued. It's in the blood of my people. We say we are born from and to the ocean. And who are your people? Beric asked. The Skane. Our homeland is far to the north, where the ice rarely melts. The Northman explained. How came you to power and more, and to be in the service of Lord Conwen? Ah, that's a tale to be told over a mug of ale. Canute replied, but there was no evasiveness in his demeanor. Here. Canute gestured that Beric should take the steering oar, and the big man stepped up onto the platform. Taking hold of the oar, Beric was immediately surprised at the effort needed to control it. The muscles in his arm, neck and back all tensed as he fought the resistance of the water. Canute laughed, but he was clearly impressed with Beric's efforts. <laughs> You're a natural, the Northman said, slapping him on the back. Beric grinned. He could understand why Canute loved being at sea. 
A ship like this connected you to the water in such a way that was raw and visceral. It's incredible! He shouted back, but as he did so, his eyes were drawn to the craggy cliffs to the south. Up on the headland were some dark ruins, which jutted up towards the sky like towering sentinels. What's that? He asked. Knut followed his gaze. They call it Kerodu. The Northman's face was grim. It's an evil place. They say it's haunted. Beric continued to stare at the ruins, and a shiver ran down his spine. Then, suddenly, there was something else. Movement. Something was approaching. Is that a bird? He asked, squinting. Could be. It's big, though. Knut replied. Give me the helm! The men switched places once again, both keeping their eyes on the thing flying towards them. The creature was approaching fast now. It was certainly bird-like, but it was huge, as big as a horse. That's no bird! Beric shouted decisively, as the creature's form became clearly visible. Its foreparts and head were those of a giant eagle. Its wingspan was over 20 feet, whilst its hindquarters were those of a horse. The creature screeched loudly, stretching out its two massive talons as it began to dive towards the ship. The crew scrambled as Knut bellowed a command. Spears! Entering combat. The result of the wandering encounter indicated a hippogriff. This was the only non-water-based possibility on the table, so I was quite surprised. But in any case, this might prove a challenge. Hippogriffs are 3 plus 1 hit dice creatures, with an ascending armor class of 14. They get plus 3 to their attack rolls, and each round it can make 2 claw attacks, dealing 1d6 points of damage, as well as a bite attack dealing 1d10 points of damage. In addition, I am going to rule that if the Hippogriff lands both claw attacks successfully, then it will carry the target off to feed at a place of safety. Let's start by rolling its hit points. 15, plus 1. Okay, at the start of each round, I will roll a d8. On a roll of 1 or 2, the Hippogriff will attack a randomly determined party member. A 3-6, it will attack a crew member. A 7, Talion will be the target. And on a roll of 8, the Hippogriff will attack Knut. Round 1. I'm going to rule that neither side is surprised. Initiative. The Hippogriff. A 4. The party and crew. Also a 4. All action will happen simultaneously. Let's determine the focus of the Hippogriff's attack. Rolling a d8. A 1. Oh, that's bad luck. It will be a party member. Now I'm going to roll a d4. A roll of 1, it will attack Beric. 2, Lena. 3, Kier. And a roll of 4 will mean that Valen is the target. Here is the roll. A 2. It's Lena. Our cleric is not having a great time of it recently. To make matters worse, I'm going to rule that no one aboard the ship is wearing any metal armour, given the increased risk of drowning it poses if thrown overboard. However, I will say that those who have shields will have time to grab them. On that basis, Lena's armour class for this encounter is 11. And so with its attack bonus, the Hippogriff only needs to roll an 8 or more to hit. First up, here are its two claw attacks. A 16 and a 2. One of the talons rips into Lena's shoulder for... Five points of damage. The cleric cries out in pain ah! as the hippogriff lunges forward with its beak. 
Not one! As the creature snaps forward, Canute pulls the steering oar hard, the Uberdracker swerves violently to port, and the Hippogriff's head collides with the mast. It will miss its next turn as it recovers itself. Now to resolve the party and cruise attacks. Remember, all this happens at the same time as the Hippogriff's attack on Lena. Kier is the only archer aboard, so I'm going to start with the rogue's attack. Now whilst Kier gets a plus one to missile attacks, I'm also going to apply a minus three penalty, given that both the Hippogriff and the boat are moving at speed. This means that Kier will need to roll a 16 or more to hit. A 17! As the Hippogriff dives forward towards the ship, Kier loses his arrow. It flies true, tearing through the creature's wing for five points of damage. Next, seeing the Hippogriff lunging for Lena, Phelan tries to attack with his quarterstaff. He needs to roll a 14 or more. But with an eight, he is thrown off balance by Canute's maneuver and cannot connect the blow. Lena swings her warhammer. She needs a 14 or more. But with an eight, she misjudges the blow, leaving herself open to the Hippogriff's attack. Beric is at the other end of the ship. He starts to push his way forward past the crew, but I am going to rule that he is unable to attack for two rounds. Finally, I am going to rule that only six of the 40 Shong crew are in a position to attack. They will need to roll 14s or more to strike with their spears. Rolling six d20s. No hits, in Korea nat 1, meaning that one of the crew misses and breaks their spear on the side of the boat. Round 2. No initiative, as the Hippogriff has lost its turn. Kier knocks another arrow. I'm going to reduce the rogue's penalty to minus two, and with his dexterity bonus, and now a bonus for short range netting off this penalty, he needs to roll a 14 or more. A nine. In the scramble of the crew, Kier cannot see a clear shot. Valen once again tries to strike with his quarterstaff. But with an eight, the mage cannot get close enough. Lena desperately tries to land a blow with her warhammer. A five. Okay, this isn't going too well. Can the crew take advantage of the Hippogriff's position? Remember, the one of the six fumbled, so rolling five d20s for the crew's attacks. Now 20! Plus an 18. But all the others fail to hit. Spears do d6 damage, so the critical will do maximum damage plus an additional die. Rolling 2d6 plus 6 for the overall damage from the crew. That's 11 points of damage, which is enough to kill the creature. As the Hippogriff recovers itself, two of the crew plunge their spears into its body. One piercing the creature's heart, killing it instantly. The Hippogriff's body drops into the water. It remains momentarily on the surface, before slowly sinking beneath the waves, where its carcass will provide rich fodder for the denizens of the deep. Thank you for listening to Legend of the Bones. If you like what you've heard, then please consider giving it a five-star review in your podcatcher of choice. It really does help the show reach new listeners. And where would I be without my amazing cast of voice actors? A newcomer to the show playing Canute's father, Harold, is Chris Barrett. Reprising the role of Lord Conwyn is Che Webster, host of one of my favourite podcasts, Roleplay Rescue. Joining Che, reprising the role of Lady Neve Conwyn, is Debbie Webster, and finally, returning in the role of Canute is John Cohen, the maestro behind the awesome Tale of the Manticore. 
My sincere thanks to all of you. The show is so much richer for your contributions. You can also help by liking or retweeting new episode announcements or by recommending the show online or to a friend. I would also love to know what you think of the show and I do respond to every message I receive. So with that in mind, you can contact me on Twitter at LegendBones, Mastodon at LegendBones, Instagram at LegendOfTheBones, email at LegendOfTheBones at gmail.com or go to legendofthebones.blogspot.com for show notes, character profiles, maps and more. Join me next time to find out what awaits our adventurers as the bones decide their fate. None shall escape the destiny of bone. Do you enjoy old school RPGs? Do you love stories of sword and sorcery? Are you tired of the typical actual plays and long unedited podcasts? Then look no further than Legends from the Fireside, a hybrid storytelling RPG podcast. A podcast filled with tales of adventure and heroism, all at the mercy of the roll of the dice. There's no telling where the story will go and where we will end up. No life is sacred and no one's survival is guaranteed. You can find the show on all major podcast platforms and we hope you enjoy Legends from the Fireside.